Welcome to this episode of Spiritual Hustle. I'm Anthony Filipovich, and along with co-host Justin Sabinski, we're proud to welcome Graham Brown. Graham Brown is one of the first uh, investors in Lush in Canada, um, and he's made that a successful three-decade career, and he's delved into personal growth that involves spirituality, meditation, and we're really interested to hear his story. Welcome to the podcast, Graham. Thanks for having me, guys. This is my... Uh Honor to be here. I appreciate the offer. I never get tired of hearing that. <laughs> I'm going to take that little cut and put it on a loop and just play it back to myself as I'm meditating. <laughs> so one of the things uh, I think we wanted to talk about initially, Graham, was Lush itself, the business, the business model and how it got started and its emphasis on ethical business practices, right? And what really is interesting to me is how does a business with that sort of ethical background and philosophy not only survive in the marketplace, but thrive? Because from, from everything I'm reading, Lush is thriving on the internet and in the brick and mortar where most people are kind of like falling to the wayside. Can you enlighten yeah. us on how they're doing that? Sure. I mean, there's a lot there in terms of yeah. um, a couple of your points that you mentioned. I'll start, I guess, with maybe the ethical stance because one thing that's important to know is when the business was founded it, there wasn't a grand master plan to take over the world and sort of be in the 46 different countries and have close to a thousand shops and and make a ton of of sales and profit you know that's that's a byproduct now that we're we're sort of enjoying the success we have but i think the key to key to starting all that is it really it really was just a self-expression of the founders and they had an ethical um, belief system to start and it wasn't actually, the intention wasn't to go out and, and be successful and make a bunch of money. The intention was just to do something they believed in and share that. Um, you know, and so a couple of those, a couple of those ethical positions were um, right there from the start. Things like, uh, like being against animal cruelty, caring for, for the planet and human rights issues. And, um, and, uh, and so that's, you know, that's my first comment. The first thing that comes to mind is, is if you use ethics as a tactic, right? Like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something in order to get something. Then I find, um, at least from my experience, you know, it's much harder to, to be successful with that. If you start with, I'm going to be this way because I think it's correct. And hopefully, and find some people that actually may believe in that and align their values with yours. I think that's, that's I think the key to, to Lush is, uh, in my opinion, is that um, the things like being, you know, an ethical, um, like I, I like to call it um, uh, capitalism with a conscience. Those things came later on, some of the terminology and all the charitable givings that Lush does as well. Uh, it sort of came, came later from different ideas about being a good, a good, um, a good company. Um, and I can talk about any of those, but I, I think that was just worth mentioning at first. I think it's, it's a non-starter to start as a tactic, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, I think I know exactly what you mean. Basically, it's almost like um, when it comes to the personal level, right? Um, you're most successful and happy when you're authentic to, with yourself as to what really moves you and what's important to you, right? And yeah. this is kind of the embodiment in a, in a corporate form. Exactly. Um, so what, what's really interesting to me is I've been in so many corporate boardrooms, meetings, right? Um, when you have corporate meetings at Lush, how does ethics get interwoven like, in just the daily conversation or, or does it? 
I mean, that'll suit me. It really does. So I'll give you one example. Okay. Um, Mark Constantine, the, the chairman, CEO in the UK, his position over time became, we want to pay, we want to pay our fair share of tax. Wow, that's different. <laughs> yeah, so you, don't have a, you don't have many business leaders going, how do we make sure we pay enough tax or even potentially more tax than our competitors? Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I've been in many meetings over the years, and that was one exact example that came up. He said, you know, as a leader in the business, I feel like I'm walking around with a big L for loser on my forehead when I'm talking to my peers because they're all working towards minimizing taxes. And uh, my, my position is, I'm sort of paraphrasing him, but my position is um, that, you know, there's various tax, tax structures and schemes we looked at over the years that our staff didn't carry them out because essentially they didn't believe in them. And so he, he started working away from looking at tax strategies and and just looking at what do I pay compared to other businesses and wanting to pay the fair share. So, you know, his big, his big issue is when there's other re retailers, especially online retailers that aren't, aren't putting into the, the system locally uh, as far as taxes. And so that's, that's an exact example that came up many times over the years in board meetings. Well, that, that, that's amazing to me. Yeah. I've, I've never, I've never heard a corporation embody those values or, <laughs> Not even like giving it lip service, right? Right. <laughs> That's incredible. How do I get a job at Lush? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there is a lot of there's a lot of access to Lush because we're pretty a wide wide uh, employer, all the way from retail, of course, to manufacturing because we we make all our own product. That's hence it's in the name Lush Handmade Cosmetics. We also build all our own store fixtures and furniture. So we're pretty vertically integrated. We almost do all, we don't outsource very much stuff at all. Of course we outsource some things, but it's a great business from that point of view. So there's plenty of opportunity and we're posting, we are posting stuff all the time on our career pages on our websites for sure. Yeah. I was only half joking, but I might check I know. that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just might check it. So I, I, I'm thinking that, um, again, I'm kind of like applying it to my experience. A lot of times like in the corporate world, um, you get you get days when it's all almost feels like it's a battle, right? You come back home, you kind of regroup and re-energize and and kind of lick your wounds and kind of go back. But working in an environment that I imagine Lush to be, it's, it sounds like it's very empowering, and that it would improve the quality of your life just by the fact that it makes you a better person. Does that hmm. sound reasonable? Well, I'm not so sure it makes you a better person, but it certainly if you feel like the business is doing good things beyond just making a profit, then I think it helps. It helps with those tough days, right? Okay. So yeah. I'm doing something that's actually making a difference versus just, just uh, selling something. Nothing wrong with selling stuff, as I said, but it, the, com the commerce with the conscience part of it does make it feel better because otherwise you, you just, well, what am I doing this for? If you, if you're butt butting up against that, then, then it can make motivation and energy management difficult. But when you know, Overall, you're doing something that's good for, for you, uh, by extension, for the you know because it's good for the environment and planet and all that. But also because, I what I like about it is yeah, it's you have a voice in the business and how it goes, and you can also create your own um, contribution to the business. So we're not we've never had a lot of fixed fixed roles and job descriptions and area you know a corporate structure that um, sort of keeps you in a smaller box, if you have an idea or something you want to contribute, 
you're, you're, you're free to do that and, and raise your hand to be involved in all sorts of parts of business. So, um, I like that because my, one of my philosophies is, is just continual learning. Right. So, you know, we, we try to be a learning organization and I think it fits well with my own, my own philosophy of, of lifelong learning. Perfect. Nice fit. So do you want to kind of talk about a little bit about how Lush has been, been able to be successful on the brick and mortar stores? Like you mentioned, there's a lot of them are open. And I read an interesting um, side note that uh, when, the, when the co-founders or the founders started Lush, they were selling products through uh, the body shop. And, and there was a clause in their contract with the body shop that they mm-hmm. couldn't open any of their own stores, right? Yeah, yeah. They let that brand go, and then I guess they started other brands, and then they became Lush, right? Um, well, yeah. I mean, there's some. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, what is their philosophy when it comes to brick and mortar that that is so different than the, the, the majority of people doing retail now? Right. So, just quickly on the origin story. Yeah, the, the founders of Lush um, were contract manufacturers, and and one of the they actually were approached by Anita Roddick in her early, early days um, when they, when she had one or two shops and she needed, she needed some herbal hair remedies and things like that. So they put a big order in to Constantine and Weir started a company of making that kind of stuff. And over, they did a, a bit, a, you know, over a 10 year run of supplying the body shop, a lot of their best selling products. Um, and as you, as you mentioned um, at some point, when before the body shop went public, they wanted to, own the, the intellectual property of all those products. So they, they sold the rights to the formulas to, to Anita Erotic and she took the company public. And at that point they had a non-compete uh, to open stores. So they started a mail order business called cosmetics to go. And that was a huge success in, in, uh, in the UK. Uh, Constantine calls it like the dot-com bust before the dot-com because they were selling stuff like crazy, but they were, they were losing a pound for each package they sold. Uh, online and they didn't realize it at first and it, so they got more and more popular and as they sold more their losses grew uh, long story short the the um, business went into receivership but out of the ashes of of cosmetics to go and when the non-compete clause expired they started up lush right. so and you know they had a we believe statement that came out of that um, in terms of making our own fragrance and printing our own labels and they had, a, they had a series of things that you can still see on our website from the original We Believe statement. Um, and so it was founded on, on ethics of, of what they b- believed in. And, and, you know, they just started small. They wanted to stay in greater London and open up a few, a few shops. And then it was so popular and everyone was knocking on the door for expansion um, that, uh, that <clears throat> they started doing license agreements for different regions. And Canada was one of the first areas to expand outside of England. And that's, that's what, where me and my partners brought, brought it to, to Canada and, you know, sort of, so there's a whole lot of other story detail there, but I want to just jump to the, okay, well, our, why are we successful in terms of the bricks, brick and mortar space? I would say the, the, the short answer to that is, is that it's very customer experience focused. So a couple different things. There's, there's a, well, there's one strategy of growth. We've expanded our store base on our own company cash flow, so we haven't used debt to open more and more locations and expand. Right. So a lot of the brands that are struggling have, you know, opened up so many shops, and they've used, usually used debt to do that. And if the sales soften at all, 
to, or more than they would like, then, then, you know, it's hard to keep the whole thing going. So in the U S market, especially there's more malls per capita in the U S than anywhere else. Right. So a lot of these companies open tons of locations on debt, sales soften a little bit and they just can't keep pay the rents and keep things going. So they start to close. So it seems like it's, it seems like the Amazon effect in a way. And it, it partly is for sure. Um, so we've been successful and what we've done with our strategy in retail is to really focus on that cu customer experience. So our average store size used to be 800 to 1100 square feet and we've been working hard keeping our portfolio stores fresh. We have about 250 stores in Canada and the U S we've been, right. instead of just opening lots of locations, we've been refitting and expanding our, our store, um, store base. So we've been taking locations in that smaller square footage, 800 to 1,000 square feet, 1,200 square feet. Did, it, did well for many years, but what we found as we grew was really hard to get enough customers through there and have a really good experience for the customers, come in and do skincare, hair care, consultations, things like that. So we've been increasing our store size. Um, Oxford Street in the UK was one of our bigger ones. It's 10,000 square feet on three different three different levels. They're leading the way there. We've taken our square footage and we've been up, opened up some much bigger locations, two, three, 4,000 square feet. And it's just resulted in a much better staff experience in terms of having their own space and customer experience as far as inter integrating with the staff and having demos and consultations and things like that. So, you know, online you can get an idea of what the products are, whether they're ours or somebody else's. Um, and yeah, you can have some good refund policies and exchange policies and things like that, but you really don't know what the product's like until you get it. Whereas in the store, you have all those great staff being able to explain it and you can actually try it out. So in a, in a nutshell, the staff experience and the customer experience, the staff's happy and they're engaged with the customers and creating a great experience. And that's, I think that's where we've been success, most successful is creating that great, those great experiences. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess cosmetics kind of, have, uh, it puts you in a position where you almost, it, you really need that, um, um, that storefront because it, it's such a particular thing to, to, to get the, the, the color just right. Um, and uh, it actually kind of, uh, in a way, a little bit reminds me of this uh, comedy skit from this, this uh, comedian who's just hilarious. And um, he looks like a black man, but um, he, um, he actually went to Lowe's and found the, his exact color of his skin. And, um, and so when he writes on the census or anything, he doesn't, he, he, he says he's a chocolate exuberance um, <laughs> to actually black. I like that. Yeah, I know. I was like, I got to do that. I, I want to know what color I am, but probably, <laughs> I'm probably mellow papaya or something. Um, yeah, no, I, I just see that there is definitely a, a higher advantage. I, I was always stunned when uh, like shoe companies, for example, uh, online shoe companies would be successful like Zappos. I was, uh, they really had to do something very particular with the refund policy um, to make that actually work. Um, and uh, I feel like cause cosmetics is one of those things where it's like you, you probably will always see like the, these, uh, these stores around simply because you, you need to find out how these um, colors work for you before purchasing them. Yeah, fair enough. I think fragrance, preferences, color, too, yeah. um, and all the innovation. So if there's something new as we're innovating, so we were like the inventor of the bubble bar, for example, solid bubble bath. Um, we were one of the original creators of the bath bomb. Oh, I but love those. That's awesome. Pretty, yeah, that. it's pretty ubiquitous now, right? Bath bomb sort of a generic industry term now, mm -hmm. uh, like toothpaste. Yeah. Uh, however, we were the original and, uh, you know, our products are great. 
you don't really know how they're going to behave in the water or smell like on your skin because the skin is another ingredient in in the in our industry as as a as a term we use because it really is true everything acts a little bit a little bit differently once you've actually applied the fragrance to your skin for example so yeah it's helpful to to have that interaction and the staff explaining and demoing stuff uh, and it's a nice compliment for online because once you know that you like something or if you have a very good exchange policy then people are okay to try stuff the new stuff out online and just exchange it if they if they prefer something else exactly yeah so and uh, you know, our, our store base has been growing we've adding locations over the years but our web sales have stayed at approximately 10 percent of our total revenue so that's def it's definitely been growing faster than our um, store base sales growth uh, and it's been able to keep up as we've been adding more and more locations so what I find interesting is you, you're mentioning the, on the retail uh, brick and mortar side, one of the things that keep you um, in the forefront and, and relevant from, from a retailer is the, the customer experience, right? And the, the staff being happy and involved in what they're doing, right? And yeah. I guess that that speaks, and, and that's like one of the hardest things for companies to do, like to get people like emotionally involved in what they're doing. Um, and I assume that goes back against uh, back again to the whole premise of the ethics and and the why, right? Yeah. The, why is a company in existence? And I guess that that's picked up by everyone there. Is that, or or is it the management team? Or is it a combination of everything? Like, how do you well, keep the people well, so happy? Yeah, it's both. I mean, I'll give you another example. Um, we have a a program called the Charity Pot, and it's yeah. an actual product in a black pot. Sort of look like an old yogurt style container. Okay. It's black, so we have our chalkboard writing on the front in white, okay. and it's a nice product with uh, with fair trade ingredients in it. Retails for about twenty dollars, and we give one hundred percent of the of the sales dollars, except for of course any sales tax that needs to go to the government. But one hundred percent of the the sales goes into a pot, and we give it to small grassroots charities and organizations to do all sorts of great things, primarily around human rights, animal welfare, and environmental causes. So, you know, we've, I think, I was just at a meeting, I think the stats, stats are something like, um, in North America alone, we've, we've uh, generated $20 million of donations through the Charity Pot program. And so every meeting we have, again, not as a tactic, but just sharing the good work that everybody's doing, we, sh we, we have uh, either Charity Pot partners or videos showing the impact that uh, selling that particular product has had. And staff can even um, suggest organizations and things like that that they want to support. There's stickers on the product that represent the different organizations and charities that are, are being supported in those areas. So it really ties it all together. And then, yeah, it's just a great feeling that you're, that when you're um, slogging it out in the mall, you know, in boxing week, when it's crazy and chaotic in there, right. not, not only, you know, you're taking care of the customers, but you also know that you're doing something that in your, that's uh, contributing to the greater good as well as bigger than yourself. Right. So right. Uh, that's why I mentioned the, the start that it, we didn't start out like, Oh, let's, let's use this as a staff engagement tactic. It's just something that came about at, to, so you, said, you asked me if it's management. Well, it is management because the management and the founders have to have the vision of, well, we're going to have a target of 2% of our sales, whatever, whatever the charity pot is. I think it's close to 2% of our sales goes to charity. Um, you have that vision and then, and then you hopefully you believe in that and then have the staff get engaged and get behind that and believe in that as well. So that's, that definitely makes a difference to have the staff feel 
part of the business and part of something bigger than themselves. And when they're feeling engaged in the brand and that we're doing good things, then they're, then they're genuine with those customer interactions, right? Yeah. Not just doing it to trade hours for dollars only. Exactly. And that's, that's actually well said, you're not just trading hours for dollars. You're getting something of personal value out of it because you're doing something that means something to you. Yeah. That's cool. So do you want to take us into that, that story in regards to how you uh, became a founder and how you got involved in the first place? Because I think that's an interesting story that will give people a lot of insight into um, how do you bring a franchise I don't, I don't know how popular West was at that time, but how do you bring the, how do you get into a franchise? How do you bring it into a country? And, and I, you have, ex, you had exclusive distribution and ownership rights in Canada. Is that correct? I assume. Yeah, that's correct. So I'll try to do the, the uh, origin story in, in a, in a way that doesn't take too much time. I can, <laughs> I can get a little long, long in the descriptions, but essentially, okay, here's the, here's the real story. And the, you know, not everybody gets the real story, so awesome. don't hold anything back. <laughs> a bit of value to the, the listeners here. Um, I already told you about the UK founders themselves, so they they started it. So, in terms of the North American side in Canada, what happened was there was a store in Kings Road in England, in the Chelsea area, and there's a big queue of people outside the, the store trying to lining up to get in, and at the time. My brother-in-law and my sister, they were, they're, not, they're not married at that point, but they're together. They're traveling, visiting a friend. And they saw this big queue of people outside the store. And they're like, what's this? And they went to check it out. Anyways, they brought a huge amount of product home to Canada from that visit. And, uh, and my brother-in-law said, I'm going to try to get this to Canada. And there were a lot of people knocking on the UK's door to, to expand at that point. Lots of people, uh, Americans and Canadians alike, and people all over the world. And my brother-in-law met um, the current CEO and president of Lush North America um, when they're doing some oil deals on the and stock deals on the Vancouver Stock Exchange. So they were business partners already. And they said, Let's, I need a partner. Let's get together and do this. And so they went and tried to negotiate the rights for Canada to bring, to bring the, um, the brand to, to Vancouver to start. And the model, when they, when they, they, they had just read the Secret Formula book, um, which is the, the sort of the, the origin story of Coca-Cola, and they had just lost their previous business, Cosmetics to Go, and, and they had realized that they needed to control the fragrance and, and and so they got the idea of licensing like the secret formula, the secret syrup, in this case, instead of uh, Coca-Cola, the, the fragrances to all the products. So they, they negotiated a license agreement that said they could, you could retail and you had to manufacture because the idea was fresh, fresh handmade cosmetics made close to source. So they needed to set up manufacturing and, and retail in order to get the license agreement. So I was in university at the time doing my undergrad degree in Bachelor of Science in Biology and Biochemistry. And I had production experience in the sawmill industry in the west coast of Vancouver Island. And they said, you need to set up manufacturing as well. And they had no idea how to do that. So they asked me if I would be the first production manager. So, you know, I didn't have a master plan, but it was one of those 
intuition things, which we can maybe talk about later, but I followed my gut, dropped out of my uh, undergrad degree with like nine credits short of my <laughs> Bachelor of Science for this entrepreneurial opportunity to bring Lush to Canada. No, no guarantee, you know, it's all hindsight at this point that it was going to be successful. And uh, decided to do that. And um, so I started, I was the first employee in Lush Canada, Lush North America in 23 years ago. And then later on got some equity into the business. Um, and uh, so we expanded um, over the years from that one location in, in Vancouver in 1996 to over 250 locations in, in North America. Now we're in 46 countries and just under a thousand shops worldwide. So as I said, the original model was a license agreement to manufacture and retail. Now, not every market manufactures anymore because it's quite a tough business to run and to, to set up locations across the world. So we, we, may, we manufacture primarily in Canada, the UK, and England and Germany, and uh, Australia and Japan are the biggest markets that manufacture as well. Um, so, it's the interesting story about all that is that one of the things that's driven me is, well, some people go, oh, well, that's you're lucky then, Graham. You know, you had, your brother-in-law and your sister got you involved, so that's why you've been in the business and and are a partner owner and all that. You, just the right place, the right time. I can't possibly be that lucky and be get that opportunity well sure okay maybe maybe I was in the right place at the right time but I feel like I was preparing my whole life for an opportunity like that <laughs> right like applying myself at school um, I knew I, I didn't go to university to, in order to become a biochemist it wasn't a means to an end for me it was just to do something and apply myself and you know I met my wife there so I often joke that my most successful semester was when I met my my now wife I think Academically, I did the worst because, you know, obviously we're spending tons of time together and, yeah. and not flying, flying myself at school as much. But, you know, other people have had lots of opportunity in Lush as well, and they haven't, A, stuck with it for 23 years, and B, um, you know, they, they, yeah, they basically didn't, didn't apply their, their, the, the luck, if you want to call it luck, that they were given. Um, but, the, but one of the interesting things about that is that was something that drove me for, for years and years and years was to prove to everybody else, I think, to start, but really to myself. And, I, and we can go into this part later if you want. But the whole feeling of, oh, well, I, you know, I have just been lucky and I haven't earned this. And I felt like an imposter for years that, that, I, that I had just sort of been lucky and that wasn't really because of me that, that I've been, had the success. So it took me a long time to get, go work through those feelings. And so that's some of the interior work that I had to do, I've had to do a lot of interior work to, to sort of keep growing and expanding my impact and then relevance in the business. Okay. And, and so as, as I said, I, I'm, not, I'm probably not doing a very good job of describing this, the whole story, but my, my brain works like that, right? I, I just go on these tangents, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one of, the, one of the things that I've had to do is keep myself, keep myself focused and organized, but. Um, yeah, so remind me exactly your question again, just so I can bring it back. I just sort of lost my train of thought there. You well, said, what was the story? And then... Right, so the story of how you got involved, uh, how you became an investor. And, yeah. Um, and how you, and, and that whole story uh, talks to the point, like how, do, how would anyone get involved with a, a franchise and bring it into a different country, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's persistent. So people had to go and negotiate. So, you know, Sweden, for example, was a country that opened up, Croatia. They had to go negotiate the license agreement. So you can't franchise and buy one shop and say, I want to buy a franchise model. You had to negotiate a license agreement for a certain area. It started out as a a license to retail and manufacture, and it was a requirement, actually, to manufacture. They've since softened softened that stance. So you can just retail and buy the product uh, from, from one of the factory countries that manufacture but originally you had to set up manufacturing and retail so does canada manufacture for the states you, you, we, it, we do actually yeah so we negotiated the canadian license agreement first and that was 90, 1996 through to 2002 and then we did well with canada and so we sort of got preferential negotiation to expand into the u.s it's a separate company but we also run it out of here out of vancouver and uh, we opened up a second factory in in toronto a few years later after vancouver Right. And we're, it's, we use about Texas roughly as the, de, you know, the delineation, the demarcation point. So Texas and West is currently supplied Canada and U.S. out of our Toronto factory. And then West of that is, is out of Vancouver. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, sorry, so, go ahead. So you, you, you basically, you basically had franchised all of North America except for Mexico, which is awesome. That's right. Yeah. I, I thought you were only in Canada. Well, and yeah, in the U.S., North America is about um, is the largest market combined for sure, yeah. and we're probably approximately forty-five, to, close to fifty percent of the global sales uh, out of those out of those um, thousand shops worldwide are two hundred and fifty, uh, and and our online sales represent about forty-five percent of global sales. We're the biggest market by far, and the U.S. market was a scary market for British retailers to go into, and I think that was why they allowed us to do it after doing being successful in Canada because they actually, you know, the founder of Lush actually did a brand called Bodkins that in the, in, out of Seattle that wasn't, wasn't successful. Um, uh, Marks and Spencer, the, you know, there's a list of British brands that have tried to crack the, the North American, specifically the U S market and have not, not been successful long-term with that. Right. So it is a bit of a success story in terms of a British, British retailer being successful in, in the U S. So, I'm curious, like when your brother-in-law and, and his partner went to England to negotiate the licensing agreement, um, yeah. they, they, they didn't have any retail experience. They didn't have any manufacturing experience. Nothing. Like, Not a like, clue. Right. <laughs> and it seemed like Lush was, was, was well on its way in England, right? I don't know how many shops they had at the time. but how does, They had three shops. Okay. So they, they aren't huge, but they're successful. They want to expand. But yeah. still... Like, how do they get the founders of Lush to, like, to buy into them, to, like, like sell them the licensing agreement? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think it was the partnership. Because, so my brother-in-law was a gregarious Australian entrepreneurial go-getter guy, good, good guy at getting things going and off the off startup stuff and getting things going hands-on. Never, never would have stayed. He actually left the business three years in. Oh, really? He wasn't going to be, and his, just his personality style, he wasn't going to manage a big brand um, long-term, but he's a great starter. And his, his partner was the financial head, the calm guy. So I think it was the combination of the two of them plus my sister on the sort of PR and, and front-end side of it that, that they just, and they were persistent because the deal was on again, off again, actually a few times. Yeah. And I was part of the, I was part of the selling um, feature I like to I like to claim anyways they said look we've already asked this guy to quit university <laughs> he's a chemist 
And at first they're worried. They're like, hey, don't let this chemist fuck with our formulas. Kind of thing. <laughs> um, I wasn't interested in doing that. But, but it was like, I remember originally my brother-in-law said, hey, if we can't get this deal, I'm, I can't do an Australian accent, but if we can't get this deal, can you take this bath bomb and take it up to the lab and tell me, what it, tell me what's in it? Because if I can't get this deal, we'll just rip it off and we'll, we'll do our own competitor. And that wasn't ever going to happen. But, and I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> but anyways, that was part of the negotiation. It was like, hey, we've got a production manager lined up. He's actually ready to go. And, and uh, you know, I like to think that who I was and – cause they met me and, and came over and did training that I was, that was a part of getting the confidence in us to do it. And uh, you know, and not every, not every partnership has worked out over the years. Right. So that's, it's like, it's kind of like getting married. You got to be, be careful who you choose. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. So the, the reason we chose the title spiritual hustle is because um, we wanted we're very interested in like uh, the spiritual side and personal growth side, right? Um, a lot of times we like to say we like to peek under the veil of reality to see how the universe really works and our part in it, right? And a lot of that has to do with the, the work you do on yourself. You mentioned a couple times that the need to do work on yourself, right? And yeah. I, I'd like to segue into like what that means to you. Um, and maybe we can start with that story uh, that you mentioned a while back. Um, the challenge you had, I don't know when it was at Lush, but yeah. when, when someone said some, some, I guess, put you down and, and I forget the context and you started, sure, yeah. you started doubting yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how you dealt with that. And you're still there 23 years later, right? Yeah. But you're definitely successful in managing that. But can you take us through that with the eye on how you grew personally out of that? Right. And what, Absolutely. what you had to do on yourself in order to achieve that and be there for 23 years. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've had lots of, lots of challenges over the years. I think what you're referring to is one of the stories I tell about. So here I am. Yeah. I dropped my courses in university and, yeah. and I, start, I start working for Lush, you know, before the first store opens up or learning how to manufacture. And, uh, you know, essentially what happened was I found out that my brother-in-law, you know, essentially was probably the hardest person to work for, you know, and without mincing words, he was, he was a bit of an asshole to work for, to be honest, like, not even yeah, a bit of an asshole. He was, he was completely unrealistic to work for. He was definitely an asshole. <laughs> yeah. So, so here I am thinking, what the hell did I do? I just dropped out of university and I'm working for somebody that's, and I don't even want to go into all the, all the details, but I'll just, I'll give you one example of, I got an early cell phone, you know, those great big brick cell phones. And uh, he said, okay, here's what you're going to fucking do. You're going to, every 20 minutes, you're going to call me and tell me what you're doing. (laughs) 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 You're going to, I don't care if you're driving the car. Cause I did a lot of stuff in the early days, right? Drive the delivery van or lots of hats uh, getting going. I don't care what the fuck you're doing. You're going to pull over. And if you're driving, you're going to tell me what you're doing. (laughs) So sort of like this ultra micromanagement and, you know, he told me how much he hated working with me and he was on my ass all the time. And I remember calling, uh, our, uh, our president saying, I can't work with this guy. And he said, don't worry about it. The idea was you're going to work with me anyway. So, so yeah, lots of moments of wanting to quit, lots of moments of thinking you made the wrong decision. And uh, I had to persevere through all that. And I wasn't a, I wasn't a pushover. So, you know, we had, we, we exchanged lots of pleasantries over him and I over the years. But there was lots of self-doubt because he was a guy that 
had made money outside of Lush and was one of the founders of the business in North America. So he had, you know, he was your boss technically. So you had to navigate that whole idea of, well, this is my boss. I should respect and work for this person, but they're pretty unrealistic and unreasonable. How do I navigate that? And then you wonder if it's yourself as well, right? Well, yeah. I've seen some of the, the blatant stuff is like, yeah, someone shouldn't behave that way. But he's a very charming guy and, and had a lot of people that, um, that would do work with him. And so I'm like, well, maybe it's me, you know, maybe it's just, what am I doing to cause him to behave this way? Um, and so I had to reflect a lot about that and it caused a lot of self doubt about my choices and who, and whether I'd done the right thing and, and whether I should stick with it. And so there was at least three years of that kind of stuff before, before he left the business complicated by if you want to go spend time with your family and your sister and all that kind of stuff, it's hard to separate out personal and business. Um, but you have to, yeah. you know, like, like literally at the time uh, in Toronto, I'm spending time with the both of them. And, and so I had to make a decision to compartmentalize because, um, you know, he even, he even cheated on my sister in the early days. <laughs> they're not, they're not together anymore, by the way, but, um, they, they had a 17 year marriage where they, they had, they gave it a go, a go. Um, anyways, I had to, you know, I told him, I said, well, I, I, I have to, I have to separate this personal and business stuff. And at that time I had to compartmentalize it. I, I don't look at that that way anymore. I don't believe, I think it's all life. I don't think it's work and personal life are separate, but it took me a long time to get to that stage as well. So that, you know, there was a lot of hardship to go through at first and being told off and fighting and, and, and so even from an early, early part of my career, I had to, I had to look at managing my own psychology. You know, if I look back on it now, I've had to, you know, sometimes in podcasts, you can, people, people, one of the questions I've heard quite a few times is if you had to talk to your 20 year old self, what advice would you give that person? <laughs> and so, you know, there's a few things I would say, but one of them would be, don't worry, it will, it will work out. Just stay the course and be true to yourself. And, you know, and I know it's cliche, but there's a lot of wisdom in, the, in those cliches as well, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of things I would tell my 20-year-old self. But, but, yeah, so the first three years I had to tough it out. And then uh, before my brother-in-law sold his shares in the company, just, just three years later, I actually got some equity in the business. And I just remember that feeling of, yeah, this whole thing is a game. You just have to play the game long enough and stick with it. And so having a little bit of equity in the business has also really helped me be patient. And so my 20-year-old self, I would tell that person, be patient. So, you know, this is a boring from Gary Vaynerchuk, but it's sort of the, the patience and the cloud, you know, the, the high working on strategy from 30,000 square feet and having macro patience and micro micro hustle. So getting in the dirt and really hustling and working hard and being, and being, um, hustling and all that. But the, one of the things that the equity really taught me was I, I probably would have quit the business 15 times between then and now, if it hadn't have been for the, for the thought of, no, I'm in this for the long haul. So that having that patience is the other advice I'd give, I'd give myself and other people listening is, is, I think we're all so instant gratification these days that people look at it and go, oh, you're lucky, you're successful. But really the, the dividends in the business, like literally the dividends paid from having shares in the business hasn't paid a cent until the last three years or that 23 years. So, you know, it's, there's lots of other people have said the same thing in different ways. Yeah. Um, 
but definitely keep digging because if you stop and you have to find your right moment to, to, to I'm not saying never quit anything. That's not right either. I'm just saying for, you have to follow your own intuition and, 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 and pick your moments. Um, anyways, another sidebar there. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, that's not the way my brain works. So I'm so excited to talk to you guys about all this stuff. I could, I could do I could do hours of that. That's what's great about these long format podcasts, but yeah, exactly. Feel free to jump in anytime. (laughs) No, no. Well, the, the reason why we're interviewing you and not um, the other way around is because we want to hear from you. So this is actually really good when, when don't worry about forgetting the the question, the question is just to get you going. Uh, We know we're going to, we're going to stumble upon some, some, uh, some gemstones along the way. And that's kind of where the fun is. So, so just feel, feel free to just, just, um, let us know, especially when it comes to the um, persistence and the patience, because I, I've read time and time again that, that um, persistence is the, uh, basically the number one trait when it comes to being an entrepreneur, because it's really not, um, it, it's really just, it, everyone just quits too soon. Yeah. And um, so, so there's a, a couple of things that you said that, that really excited me. That, that was the first thing was, was 23 years, very long time. Um, plenty of time to quit. Now, looking back on it, everyone says you're super lucky. It's like, no, fuck you. I worked, <laughs> I worked my ass off. Yeah. I, I, I never liked people that, that, that said that. Um, Cause it was always like, it, it just made you stopping and go like, what are you talking about? You know? Um, but um, so yeah, you, you hit on a few things that, that I liked. And um, I, I guess this would, since we're starting to talk about traits and, and stuff, um, I, do want to talk about you writing in the idea of being selfish and kind of getting uh, more focused along the lines of um, uh, we've learned a lot about Lush. Now we want to learn about Graham and yeah. uh, how he's progressing and, um, and, and Graham's philosophy basically. Sure. Yeah. You know, so I, looking back on it, the, the toughest thing I've had to manage isn't the stuff at Lush, right? Like the, the tasks and the business processes and all that the toughest thing has been managing my own psychology. Yeah. I talked about feeling like an imposter for many years and not feeling deserving of the success that I had even constantly not feeling enough. And that's good. It's a strong suit in a way to keep developing yourself. And, but there's a lot of years where I was developing myself feeling like, well, I just need to be better. So I'm going to, so, so state from a, from a place of I'm something broken with me. Like I've got to fix myself. I've got to be a better executive, a better leader, a better this, better that. But one of the things I always felt really connected to is, well, I'm a great father, right? So I'm a father of three, but yeah, working hard over all those years, I, I, you read through the baby books and it's like, oh, daddy's away in England this week and he's in Toronto. And so there was a lot of hard work and sacrifice, but I was able to, I want to say balance, but I was able to juggle being committed to being a good husband and father uh, on, alongside the lush journey. So I didn't realize at the time, but yeah, managing my own psychology and those moments of self-doubt and that was, that's, that was, that's been my work. That's really been my work is because that, you know, where I've been the, the best leader and all that is when I'm out of my own way and I'm, it's not my ego running me and I, I'm in a space where I can actually truly listen to what people's challenges are, um, you know, at work, but also personally. Right. So, you know, my effectiveness has just increased and increased over the years by working on myself first and it's been more and more freeing when you, when I've gotten past the place of thinking there's anything wrong with me and I've and I'm just but I'm just on my journey um and so yeah I'm an avid I'm an avid avid reader and listener of podcasts and I think it's because of 
the idea that all these conversations that you can have with, with great, great people, there's one little thing that one little distinction you can learn or, um, you know, um, tactic or a piece of advice that can shift your whole outlook and really can literally change your life. So I've always read lots of books. Um, and I got off it for a little bit because I felt like, I felt like, as I said to you before, cause it was, I was fixed trying to fix myself. And so it wasn't the right context, but when I changed my context, uh, and, and was at peace with myself, then it was even more powerful to just keep pouring, pouring into my own learning. So that's one of my philosophies for sure is work on yourself um, first because there's so much stuff that we have going on in our own head um, that can be helpful at times, but it can also be really not helpful. That, that, that if you do that work first, then you can be really present in, for the people in your life personally and in business-wise that will make a difference. And, and it's, it's just been a huge game changer for me to, to, to realize that. So I, I encourage everybody to just really think about that as it's not selfish. I, I talk about being selfish because to, just to, that, to provoke that exact reaction that you had, uh, Anthony, that being selfish is as a poor, poor quality almost, right? right. Well, I would actually argue that you can't be available for others. And you can't, unless you love yourself first, you really can't love and be available for others. Right. Uh, and it, it does sound like a cliche, but as I said, because I think there's a lot of beauty and wisdom in those cliches. Like you have to love yourself first in order to be effective and love other people. It's like Jordan Peterson says, you know, make your bed. Um, and, it, and it's his, his way of saying like, get your shit together first before you try to fix the rest of the world's problems. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people, their life's a mess and they're telling other people what to do. And it, 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 uh, it doesn't work that way. You got to start with yourself. That's yeah. right. At the same time, don't, don't wait to start something because you're like, oh, no, I've got to work on myself first. I don't mean that. I mean along your path. Right. Uh, like use, use that self-development. Fortify, you know, this is a Robin Sharma, so I give credit where credit's, review, where credit's due, but fortify your interior em- empire first. And he says your exterior empire is completely proportional to your interior empire. So in other words, your manifestation in your exterior world, if you don't feel like, you're where you need to be, you know, financially or relationship wise or all these types of things. It's not out there. Right. You know, it's not, it's not your circumstances. It's not where it's not out there that it, that's, that's, that's happening. It's inside. So yes. your exterior empire is a complete reflection and correspondence corresponding to your imperial empire, the interior empire that you built. So while you're doing something, you know, not waiting to do something and take action, but while you're doing, taking those actions and, and, you know, no shame in trading hours for dollars either. Like I was saying to you earlier, Anthony, yeah, it's not my, not my uh, vision to do that, just to only trade hours for dollars, but there's no shame in, in working for, for an employer. I'm, I'm just saying work, work at yourself. And if you're happy doing what you're doing and you're contributing and you know, that's fine. Just don't like Gary Vaynerchuk says that don't complain though. Right. Don't complain about where you're at because that doesn't get you anywhere. So work on yourself and, and work hard at what you're doing yeah. and your exterior empire will follow. Right. So create that interior empire and be fortified inside first. So that's what I've been really focusing on as well. And I, I did figure that out a while ago that in terms of that realm of money and all that, it's really just a measurement of some sort of a game, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if you're ever feeling like you're not making enough money, I would, I would put to the audience, just look at it like a game. Well, I'm not being effective enough with myself and I'm not making a big enough difference for other people. That's why I'm not getting the money flowing my way. It's, it's not my circumstances. It's, 
it's my own effectiveness in the world, which starts internally. Right. It's how you're managing your internal world, really, is what yeah. you're talking about, right? Exactly. So this is the stuff I'd love to talk about. So when you're talking about working on yourself, um, I'm assuming that uh, a lot of the work you're doing on yourself is from the stuff you learned from Robin uh, Sharma? Yeah, right? Robin Sharma has given me a lot of the, a lot of the real tactics. You know, one, yeah. one really good one is he calls it the holy hour or uh, he calls it the 20-20-20 principle. Right. So I get up in the morning and I, and I don't want to come across like I've got everything figured out and that I do this every time. But, but I did this at least for the first 66 days because the University College of London, London says that you need 66 days to, to really ingrain a new habit. You know, that gets to the point of autom automaticity where beyond the 66 days, it's harder to actually stop the new mm -hmm. habit. Yeah. But most people, as far as quitting, they, they try something else, you know, whether it's going to the gym or this or that. And most of the time it fails a lot of times because they haven't done it long enough. They need to do it at least 66 days is what the science is showing. So I did this and it's amazing. He, so he calls it the 20-20-20 principle. So the very first hour you get up and the earlier the better because there's lots of science behind that. Mm. Um, but you get up at early, let's say 5 o'clock. And he's coming out with a book shortly <laughs> 5 a.m. club. That's too late, man. That's too late. It's going to be 4 a.m. Yeah. So uh, get up at 5 in the first 20 minutes. So that's where the 20, 20, 20 comes from. The first 20 minutes, you move. So you get some exercise going. Anything that causes you to sweat. Right. Uh, you know, ride a bike, go for a run. I mean, there's lots of things. You, you need to get a sweat going because that, that, uh, that gets your brain going and your body releases um, BDNF and it, and it, starts going attack on the on the stress hormone right cortisol so 20 minutes of movement and then the next 20 minutes you do uh, uh, reflection so journaling um, meditation affirmations that kind of stuff for the next 20 minutes then the next 20 minutes the last 20 minutes of the 2020 formula is learning so reading reflecting on notes um, listening to podcasts watching a documentary something where you're learning and developing your brain. And then the amazing thing about that is no matter what your day looks like after that, you've protected that one hour of your day. Not only you're you've been un uninterrupted most of the time because it's most other people are sleeping, right. but you really started the day off powerfully with movement, learning and, and uh, reflection. And journaling is another tactic that is really, really good as far as working on that interior empire because you're writing down your thoughts and you're, you're processing all sorts of stuff. You're locking in things that have worked well and you're processing emotion, the things that haven't worked well or things that you're dealing with instead right. of bottling that up and suppressing that stuff. You're actually unpressed, un un you know, suppressed and unprocessed emotions are a big, a big thing that can get in your way. Yeah. And so journaling is a great tactic tactic to go through that stuff. So, you know, as many times as I can, uh, that's what I'm doing to start my day. And it's, it's made a world of difference um, for sure. Uh, having that that alone alone time for myself every morning. So the the course that I told you about, the Joe Dispenza course, um, a lot of his a lot of his techniques are kind of like follow the same line as Eastern philosophy techniques, right? The cool okay. thing about him is he's put a lot of scientific investigation into why these techniques work and how to optimize it, right? Yeah. And, and one of the things he mentions is like meditation is critical because when you're meditating, your brain waves go into alpha and higher states, right? And alpha and theta, right? Right. And, yeah. and the higher, and even gamma, if, if you're a really good meditator. 
and right. the higher the brain waves, the less the stress hormone, like the stress hormones are suppressed and the good hormones are released, right? Right. So that's, that's one of the, the main reasons to do that. And he was saying, you want to do, uh, you want to meditate when the melatonin uh, levels are the highest, right? And that's between mm -hmm. 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. Ah. So starting at the beginning of September, uh, we had this seven-day course in Toronto. We got up almost every day at 4 a.m., went down and did meditation. Right? And I've been doing it almost every day since then. And just that one thing, getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and doing the meditation has had like a huge impact on me. And, and, we, and in this course, we did meditations that lasted for, for four hours, whereas before, and, and time went by like that, which is one of the best indicators that you're, you're in the zone, right? Amazing. Yeah, so that course taught me like those two important things, like doing it early in the morning, and it seems like most great practices start early in the morning, get that hour set aside, you know, make it about yourself, be selfish, right? Be selfish exactly. for that first hour. And then work on yourself, and then you can give to the rest of the world, your family, your kids afterwards. Right? You've got to take care of them. What would Shwarma refer to? The, the interior interior empire. And empire, right? You got to yeah. take care of that first. Yeah. Um, and it's it, it made a huge difference. And when it when it comes to waking up early in the morning. Um, it's one of these weird things where like if, if you just do it, like, like you said, the, the 66 days um, and do it hardcore, like really focus on it. W once you hit that point of habituation, when you do uh, make a mistake and you do wake up later, like, you, you, like uh, this morning I woke up at, at five o'clock. I, I felt legitimately guilty for waking up at five as, as opposed to four. And it was like, I was like, yeah, no, I was like, oh, my whole day is ruined. And I get up and I'm like, I'm like running down the stairs to, to catch up. and. Uh, um, I'm a whole day, I'm a whole hour behind, um, but, uh, I finished everything and, and it was still dark out. So <laughs> no, that felt good. Yeah. It's easy, easier to course correct. Right. Yeah. And that's not about feeling bad about missing some sort of target or whatever, but it's about, yeah, just protecting that, that time as best you can. And it's easier to keep those habits going once you've like, for example, before I started doing that, I, I work out every Thursday morning, uh, and Saturday morning. Thursday morning is 5.30 in the morning that I hit go with my personal trainer. Um, talked to me two and a half, three years ago about working out at 5.30 in the morning. There's no way that I would have done that, right? Yeah. And so yeah. now it's, it's easy. It feels like a bit of a sleep in to, to go for a 5.30 workout. So yeah. um, it's, it's opened up something that never would have been possible for me three years ago to get up and, and actually go to a training session at 5.30, you know? So... It's, it yeah, it's those little things because um, I, I actually I met up with a friend of mine who I hadn't talked to in like three years, um, and we went to get a cup of coffee, and he he's like he's like oh here comes Justin with his cup of sugar because I used to just pound a pour sugar on it, and, and it was like maybe like a few months after I stopped hanging out with him because uh, he moved away, I stopped eating any sugar at all, and yeah. it's just one of those like friendly reminders of how different and uh, uh, crazy. Like basically how much uh, everyone's grown uh, and, and, and improved. And, and it's like, you know, when you get, when you catch these little glimpses, you're like, like, Oh man, I really have done a lot of work. Cause a lot of people in their heads and uh, this is kind of what, what I'm leaning at it, think that they're not progressing very swiftly when in actuality they, they, they secretly are. Um, and, and, um, and, and what I'm leading it towards is I, I do feel like a lot of people um, feel like they were in, in your shoes at, at one point when it came, when it comes to the, um, um, feeling like an imposter 
And yeah. I, it's something that I've heard multiple times. I actually, a, a friend of mine was telling me about it when um, he was getting into um, coaching people. And, um, and he's like, he's like, dude, I feel like such a, an imposter. I'm telling these people to do things that, that I'm not even doing myself. And it's like, uh, if my initial thought was like, maybe you are an imposter. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but then like, uh, when we, when we continued talking, like he, he, he was like explaining himself, he was helping somebody do do something that was, uh, he shouldn't have been doing, uh, like he, him personally. But, um, um, this, this feeling of, of being an imposter kind of, for a lot of people just stops them in general. They, they just won't do, um, what your, even what your brother did, but, but what, if they felt that, that feeling like I don't belong here, then they're not going to walk around in those shoes for very long. And it's one of those things that I, I, I guess, uh, it, it would be important for, for you to explain how you overcame that, the, the feelings that you had, how you overcame it. Um, is it something that you just, that, that you just grew up one day and looked at, looked in the mirror and was like, Oh, this, this is where I belonged all along or, um, was it a much longer process? And it, it just, uh, go, go ahead with that. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, the, your ego is there to protect you. So a lot of the early days was like, well, F you, you know, like you, I, you're the problem, not me. So there's a bit of that where you get your guard up and you, but then those times when you're doubting yourself and feeling that there's something wrong with you and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just know that the last, last three years, especially when I've started really increasing working out of my, my in, interior uh, self, like we've been talking about, that those feelings of being a, an imposter and of not being worth worthy and all, they, they've started to diminish and, and they can still be there, but they, the, the, the power that they hold over me is, is, is really diminished. So I don't know if that's answering your question or not, Justin, but I think that it, that being open-minded to new ideas and reading materials and listening to other people's story and relating it to your own. And that's really been my saving grace, right? Because then you realize that this is a human condition, right? (laughs) This is humanity of, and again, I think part of feeling an imposter, like to your story, your friend teaching stuff and being coaching, if you feel, if you, you don't feel authentic, if you have, if you don't feel everything that you've got everything figured out yourself or that you've mastered everything, then you feel a bit, uh, disingenuous, but the truth is, not none of these coaches or, or anybody that are doing any of this stuff—they're not infallible human beings, right? <laughs> They—they're—they're just—they're just sharing stuff that hopefully is makes a difference for people. But that doesn't mean that they've got everything figured out and they're perfect and and they have no transgressions of any kind. Yeah, I guess that was kind of kind of what I was looking for. My my the, the way I overcame that was uh, with Socrates because um, I, I can't I can't remember what the exact quote, but he was just like he was like. The only time like a, he ever like felt like he truly knew something was when he acknowledged that he didn't really know anything. And, um, and to hear him say that it's like, it's one of those ego things. It's like, well, you don't know anything. And then I, I go and like, I stop and look at pretty much everything in my entire life. I look at this couch, this computer, this table. I don't know how any of this stuff got created and yet it's here. I don't even know how it got here really. Like I have a general idea, but it's like, it's like, oh, what the, like, I don't yeah. know anything. Like what's this pen made out of? Um, yeah. how does ink work? And, and, and then it's like, so, and then, then you stop it. Cause like, I, I truly believe that I'm fairly intelligent. So if I'm fairly intelligent and I don't know how any of this stuff works, then nobody knows how any of this stuff works. And there's just one person who knows how to make a couch or like a few people, you know? And it's just yeah. like, and you're like, okay, cool. I can traverse this world. Um, I just felt like, I, I felt like, I guess everyone was lying to me with this whole, I, I know everything in the entire world. And then like, you see the, the veil on the other side and you're like, 
I don't know anything, therefore you don't know anything. Ha, you know, we're all just idiots. <laughs> that's a good one. You know, the, that's very true. And I think that whole thing of the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. That's so, yeah. so true. That, that's the saying, yeah. And so-called experts and masters and things like that, well, they're, they're, they are further along their particular journey. Um, but we're not behind where they are. We're just at a different spot. It's sort of like comparing your eight-year-old kid to your five-year-old kid and saying, well, the eight-year-old's better at X, Y, Z. Well, yeah. 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 That's very similar. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and, and, um, so I I like what you said there because it's sort of like, we're all on this, we're all actually in the same. And that's, that's where, that's another thing that I've learned over the years, getting closer and closer as far as, you know, and, is that we we are we it's we are all <laughs> we are all part of it's really getting woo woo out there and all that but we are we're not so different where there is no like the concepts of self and all these things it's like actually I'm not we're not separate you and I Justin you know no yeah uh, we're we are actually part of the same experience and the same existence and we're just energies and yeah and so that feeling of not being up to snuff compared to somebody else is what causes a lot of problems in this world for sure. Yeah. Uh, I have experienced that firsthand. So getting out of that comparison to others and feeling that others are better is a really it's a, a huge step towards peace of mind when you can figure that one out. Um, and, and is that what gave you peace of mind? Because you, you mentioned earlier that you know, the first three years were, were rough, but then you got peace, then you got your own peace of mind. Is, is that how you did it? Yeah, and that's been a continual journey. So yeah. I'm working on that every day. So I don't want people to think that I've got everything figured out. That's for sure. But yeah. um, but definitely peace of mind is, has been increasing the more and more work that I do in that realm. Um, there, and, you know, you, you guys also mentioned something. So I, I am a scientist by background as well. So I do really resonate. And it's not just Robin Sharma. There's lots of lots of people that tie the two together, but he's been really good at that. And it's been very effective for me right. to, tie, to tie science and understanding principles behind, behind certain things along with the spirituality, because it just for me anyways, um, I connecting the two has been a way to bridge my formal training that I've had. And I wouldn't say that I, that I've been agnostic my whole life, but as far as spirituality and all that goes, I've been, I've had my own arc going through that. Right. I wasn't a religious, um, background growing up as a kid. Um, my dad was more of a, what he liked to call a humanist, <laughs> but, but anyways, no matter what term or label you use, um, spirituality is a very interesting topic. And, yeah. and, uh, and yeah, I just think for me tying some of the science, um, behind our own experience, because we do, we are, you know, from a biology point of view, you can break it right down to the simplest thing and the cynical biology part of me says all we are is sacks of water carrying around DNA. That's the sole purpose of where, who we are and just to, to carry on that DNA to the next generation. That's, a, that's our only purpose This sort of that, that end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum is of course, a much higher purpose, which is something that I don't know about. Right. Like you said, Justin, I, the more I know, the more I don't know, yeah. but there, there is something bigger than all of ourselves and, and for sure. And, and, doesn't matter what you label it or what you call it that that exists and that to me that ties into intuition and all, all these other concepts when you trust the intu- intuition you have and and yeah and, and you and you do all those types of things it's amazing what 
and it's just such a privilege to even be on this on this planet and then you know talking to you guys and doing the things that I'm doing and that really helps that gratitude practice <laughs> thing that I wanted to share I don't know if we were going to get around to that as far as a specific question or technique but one of the other things that's really helpful is that gratitude practice of of just holy hell I'm so lucky to be doing what I'm doing every day the good and the bad all the experiences we have we're so lucky right. um, it's an that, amazing thing yeah, that's one of the, the big tra the transitions in, in, in um, when you start doing gratitude. Um, you do it and you're like, you're like oh, I'm so thankful for my family. And I'm so thankful for this great opportunity. And then like a couple, maybe a couple weeks, a couple months later after doing that, one day you go, wow, I am really thankful for that terrible thing that happened that completely changed my life and made me into the man that I am now. And it's like, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't have gotten into all of this stuff. And, and then and next, so like, it's like, and then you stop and you're like, you have that moment where you're like, did I just thank myself for something that was really bad that happened to me? And you're like, yeah. And it's like, like, oh, this stuff works. Like I, you don't need to, you don't need to look too deep into it when, uh, in, in terms of that. But when you can find positivity out of, out of negativity, then, then you got, in my opinion, a, a superpower. And Absolutely. It feels good. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and you know, it does go deeper than that. And, and I guess, um, what, uh, you, you uh, mentioned that you have the, the how, so how do you do with gratitude? Um, do you just uh, jump into it for 20 minutes or? Yeah, so for me, I need, a, I need structures a little bit that help me with that. So I have a gratitude practice as part of my morning routine where I write down on my iPad. I have a, I love, I love the Apple Pencil on the iPad because you got the kinesthetic part versus. It feels good. Yeah, I like it. Computer. Um, I have a weekly, a weekly design system. So it's just my week charted out with what I intend, my intentions and that kind of stuff. And I write down six things every morning. And if I don't get to the morning, I do at least, I at least do it each day that I can. Uh, I write down six things that I have gratitude for. And like you said, a lot of it is when you start out is things like your family and, and um, your children and that kind of stuff. Uh, health comes up a lot. So sometimes you can write down really broad terms and then sometimes you can get extremely specific, which is like, you know, the, the coffee that I had this morning, or you can actually say the, the, the breeze that I felt, you know, while I sat outside of my patio and the view, uh, or, you know, or just breath itself. You know, I, the fact that I'm breathing and not struggling breathing, because there's lots of people on the planet that are breathing or stopping breathing or having trouble breathing. And so you can just kind of cycle through all these different things and you can borrow a few and recycle them. That's totally fine. But then you find if you just give yourself that space to be gratitude, have that gratitude that all sorts of things come up. So for me, it's, you know, it's just, just something I've put in those six, six different things. Sometimes you can write more, but it's just that habit, right. Of, of, of doing it. And um, so that's how I access that because I find without a structure of some sort, then yeah, you just forget or you go into your own head about what you're complaining about or whatever. Right. So just having some sort of practice like that. And I just use writing it out six different things as my mental cue to, to do that. I like it. Yeah. Gratitude is, I, I told this story to, to Justin a, a long time ago, but I'll tell it to you too. It, and it, 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 it's when I realized how important gratitude was. I had spent a, a week at um, Nantucket with uh, this, uh, my coach. He was my coach and I went out there and we were doing like a visioning thing for my next year, right? And as yeah. part of that, he did, uh, he did different meditations. And during one of the meditations, I could, I could feel myself trying to break through and, and take myself to the next level in regards to what I wanted to do with my career perspective, right? 
And then I, I could literally feel and see like this wall of energy that was preventing all this other energy from coming in, right? The, the mm. energy that I wanted to be, it was a wall, right? And it wasn't a wall put up by anyone other than myself, like through fears, through habitual habits, through whatever, it was just like this wall of crusty energy, right? And then when I, when I felt gratitude, all that energy, just the negative energy went away. And then all of the, the universe, for lack of a better word, could flood in and help me towards the goal that I, that I wanted, right? And it's like gratitude allows these positive energies to come into your life. And that's why, that's why it's so important. Because it enables your energies to mix with the, the broader universal energies in a positive manner. Otherwise, you're, you're like cocooned and your energy's all constricted and tied in and, and there's no interaction yeah amazing story love that yeah that was uh i've had like three or four major revelations in my life and that was that was definitely one of them power of gratitude so when someone says gratitude i go hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's an important one you got to stick with that one absolutely so when it comes to spirit spirituality what is the, what does that mean to you like you mentioned that connectedness, right? But like, do you feel that connectedness? You know what? There's some, there's some reason, um, especially in the last year, and I'll I'll tell you the I'll tell you why, and, and part of the reason why. But I, yeah. I, and again, the more you know, the more you don't know, kind of thing. But for me, and I just I can even feel it when I'm thinking about saying this to you guys. It's for me, it's all about love. Yeah. The word love, whatever it is about the word that, so that's a human construct language and, but it's been, but it's one of the things we use to, as, as, as our experience is to create languages. Love to me, spirituality, God, and it was actually Marianne Williamson who I, who I, I, I saw um, speak. She gave a, a wonderful um, session in Toronto last year. And, you know, her, her book, if, for those listeners that may or may not know about it, I think it was called Return to Love. Yeah. And I actually told my wife after reading that book is, oh, well, I believe in God now. And my wife's <laughs> like, because I, I, I don't think I would have said that in, using those words anyways before. Um, because she basically, in a nutshell, and I don't want to misquote her, this is my interpretation. It might be in the book. You guys can read it if you get to it. She basically said God is like, she defines God as love. Right. So, uh, it just, I can just, my, my hair, my, I getting the chills just thinking about like that to me, I think that is my, that is my purpose mm. is, to, is to spread love. And that sounds really hokey probably right now, maybe for some people. Um, but my, my daughter created a, she's five. She did a little craft for me. I was supposed to go on my keychain. It was little beads spelled out letters, spelling out words. And she's five years old and she picked this herself. I, cause I actually made a point of asking her teacher and all that, did this, where did this come from? But she, she chose to make for me something that said loving Graham. That's the two words that she spelled out of my little keychain thing. And, and it's just, it was amazing because I actually believe that my whole journey and cause we're a handmade cosmetics company, Lush is, so there's lots of people. Uh, you know, we have 6,000 core staff right now um, in the business. At least 1,000 of those are manufacturing, which is the realm that I'm in charge of. And we double our staff base. Um, we'll have close to 14,000 people this, this Christmas 
because of the seasonality of our business. You mean in North America? In North America alone. Wow. Um, when I get connected to what I'm here for, it's not to generate profits for the business to have a certain job title. I, I actually was, I'm actually got involved with Lush because of the gift of impacting lots of different people uh, and in creating, creating, creating an interesting thing for them to be a part of. I've always been a part of winning teams throughout my, throughout my experience of life. It's one thing that I've been into as far as sports and music and all that. And I love being on winning teams and I realize what it's, what it's for. It's because those moments that you can create where you're doing something amazing together and, and you're spreading this feeling of love and enjoyment. It's just, that's what my purpose is in life. <laughs> and, and, you know, I don't know. For me, that spirituality is that love. That, and love is just a word for that, to me, that universal energy, whatever, whatever that is. And I have no idea what it is. You know, as we said, Justin, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, and science helps you understand parts of it, you know, parts of what the universe is comprised of and all that. But there's definitely, it, like, I'll give you one other quick th thought. It's like the, the vastness of the universe is expanding, at, I think, at the speed of light maybe it's again going faster is what I understand. So it seems like it's possible. It's almost impossible to understand the scope of that. Right. And then you get down to the atomic level and it's weird how there's a duality of there's the universe and there's every atom and there's electrons. And to me, it's just, everything is the same. Like everything exists with inside that smallest possible iteration of whatever we define it as. It's the same as the whole universe together. And, and so it just blows my mind. And so when, for me, that's, for me, that's where my head goes to is just, I have no idea what it is, but there's something, there's something that we don't understand and it's, it's fun to try to understand it, but then just to be open to not knowing and, and it's okay. Mm -hmm. And, but yeah, for me, love is the word that just captures it for me. Don't know why. And I'm, so I'm, I'm still exploring and learning why that is. <laughs> well, um, uh, I could give you some, some insight based on my research on, uh, on love. Um, well, the, the first thing is that, that, that you said that there's a lot more going on in language than, uh, than meets the eye. And, um, and one of those is the word love. Love backwards loosely spells evolve. And um, you, you see a lot of these forward backward things a lot. And when it comes to biology, um, evolution is how we got here. Um, and it ties perfectly into uh, love itself, because the idea that evolution is based on loving other people and loving other things is fairly accurate based on natural selection. The, the, um, uh, from basic, basic sexuality point, you know, you have to have sex. You have, and, and you don't need love to, to do that, but it helps. It certainly helps. And, uh, and it helps your, your, your children as well. It basically helps your, your, yourself reproduce in general. And, um, it, um, when when you start looking at, at at love, you have to find the the actual opposite of love, and uh, and the opposite of love is actually fear. It's not hate, um, mm -hmm. because it, sometimes it's good to hate something if the, if it's bad. But um, but but fear actually kind of contracts your, your, yourself. Um, and um, and going back to Jordan Peterson and the lobsters, you know, the more the the lobster loves itself and thinks it's great and can defeat all the other lobsters. Um, the bigger it gets, the stronger it gets, the, the more likely it's going to find a mate and, and the exact opposite for the lobster that's, that's based in fear. And it's like, uh, 
I literally just read the first chapter of Jordan Peterson's 12 rules and it was the lobster thing. And I was like, I was like, <laughs> Oh, I get the joke now, <laughs> but it's like, it, it just, it, it's a great example. And it's something that you won't forget on, on how this uh, love expands, uh, fear contracts. And it's like, the more you love, the better you feel. And it's one of these things, like the more you get into that, it, the big, the more uh, it, it just keeps building upon itself. And, and, and it's like, it's like, that is love. That is what, what you should be striving for. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, the, and those are the two dichotomies, order, chaos, love, fear, um, yin, yang. It's, a, it's all the same thing. And that's, that's the creepy part about it. Um, so yeah, so I, I think you're really, you're really onto something with this love thing. Amazing. Thanks for that. I appreciate that, Justin. Let me tell you one of, one of my uh, other epiphanies. <laughs> this was when I was, I was studying with a enlightened master. We were in India, kind of like the cliche spiritual experience, right? Um, and we were outside of Chennai, like on, in this five-star resort, uh, right by the water. It was a beautiful setting. And every day we would sit down with them and meditate. And he would do this thing called darshan, which is transmission of energy to the students, right? And you could literally feel it. It's like the sun was like shining on you, right? Um, and at one point, like after three or four days of doing this, the, the mind, my mind went away. You know that chatter you always have? It was gone. It was completely gone. And as soon as the mind went away, the heart opened up, right? And when the heart opened up, there was just so much, it was this overwhelming love and joy that like, poured in. Like I didn't, I didn't know that a human could feel this happy and this much love, right? And, and I kind of realized that that is like the basis of the universe. And for whatever reason, we, we cut ourselves off from that source, but that that really is the universe. And the fact that that the hell on earth comes from us living in the head and not the heart, right? Mm-hmm. That that I think is the fall for man. And not until like humanity learns how to live in that heart, like really live in that heart and find that love and feel it everywhere, will our society have a chance of surviving. Um, so love is like when you experience it and feel that level of love, like when you when you can close the mind off, you realize that that's all. That's the only game in town. That's all that really matters because that connects you to everything. It's like you're going home. Yeah. And maybe that's what we all crave going home, right? And that's kind of like um, the signs along the roadway back. I always find it fascinating how um, it seems like, you know, we started the conversation talking about, about Lush and then somehow we're, we're, in this, we're in this weird place where we're talking about love and meditation and spirituality. And it's like, and I could see people saying like, hey, those are two exact like opposing forces. Um, and I just don't see it that way. I feel like these things are intrinsically connected and that, um, and that one builds upon the other, um, and it makes, it makes the other a, a lot, a lot larger. It goes straight back to the, um, to, uh, what your, uh, mentor was saying, um, in ter- terms of having this, this internal, um, empire and that building out itself. If you, you if you come, uh, with, with a, a deep level of spirituality and understanding in particular of the mind and everything, um, everything outside of you just starts to kind of work out and, and work out in, in beautiful fashion. Yeah. And, and that, and the, and that doesn't mean that everything's beautiful all the time. And I think that's what people struggle with is, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I must not be on the right track because these things are happening to me. And I think one of the secrets is 
is to take like actually so robin sharma talks about it as seasons right if you look at nature there's seasons there's there's winter there's spring autumn and and uh summer and there in, in our life experiences we have winter and dark times and i think it's when we think those things shouldn't be there that that causes a lot of stress on top of exactly. on top of everything else we're dealing with right so i think you know if that's anything i can leave some of the listeners with is if you can learn to leverage the darkness and realize that, Oh, this is just a season. And, uh, you know, I'll emerge on the other side of this. Um, you know, I just, I just think there's a lot of, a lot of people really struggling with mental health issues and I have no stigma around that. Like, uh, what all I mean is cause I've, you know, I've had my own experiences with, with that internal hell on earth. Right. And we're talking about, I mean, that's, that's when you're in your own head, struggling sort of in that thing of struggle but yeah it's like those seasons and those things are natural and and normal and actually required right so it's just an analogy for for um the the actual physical seasons are an analogy i think for for life experiences as well so hopefully that's helpful for people if they haven't had that described to them before because i i thought that was really helpful when I was, when I was, um, described that it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Like just from a uh, biology and an evolution point of view, right. There's a needed, there are seasons and, a, and not only is it helpful to have all those seasons, but it's actually required. So. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just going back to the seasons, I mean, too much sun, you have a desert planet, too much, uh, rain, you have uh, we're underwater, um, too much snow, too cold, um, it's principle of rhythm. Yeah, got to swing forward and back. That's right. So you mentioned you um, you're meditating now. What what sort of meditations are you doing? Yes. So um, I'm definitely somebody that needs that structure. So the the thing that I've been using the most as a as a tool to actually start getting a meditation practice installed in my life. Right. is I must admit I use the Headspace app. So probably a lot of people are familiar with the Headspace app. But that's great for me because it gamifies it a little bit, tells me how many days in a row that I've done it, how many. And it's not, it, I, I like the gamification just from a point of view of measurement. Measurements are helpful. I think they're not the be-all, end-all themselves, but just like money and everything else, it gives you a bit of a feedback loop on, on where you're at. Right. So I really like the guided meditations with uh, Headspace. So... Primarily, I do a 20-minute um, morning meditation, um, and and there's different packs that you can get if you actually subscribe and pay. There's lots of there's free meditations with that with that app, but the, you can also pay for some content. Right. And one one that I really have liked recently is when you um, first you do it, you imagine in yourself, but it, and I'm and I'm probably not doing it justice, but you imagine light a light source energy in your chest expanding. Right. And then you can also imagine that against somebody else, somebody else you have a good relationship with. Uh, and, and it's sort of, and, and I've learned this in Tim, Tim Ferriss's podcast and other podcasts, there's an actual term for it. And Justin probably tell me what it is or, or Anthony probably could as well. But essentially when you're, when you're projecting light or love at someone else, um, you're actually benefiting yourself as well. And so that, that, that I found some extremely interesting things with when I start imagining um, light and love and energy in somebody else. And especially when it's somebody that I've had difficulty with, 
and actually get to a spot of, of you know, really transforming that sort of resentment or any, any feelings of, I don't want to use the word hate because I don't, I don't hate people, but negative, negative feelings towards others. If I, it's amazing how much you can transform yourself even by focusing on loving and energy and light in somebody else. So there's a term for it. I can't remember what it is right now, but um, that, that one's been extremely powerful recently for me. Yeah, it, it goes back to, to being the self, being selfish. It's, um, um, we, uh, do you remember Marcel? Yeah. From, uh, yeah. Um, he was talking about, we were talking about how, like why he doesn't eat meat and everything. And he's like, he's like, well, I do it for selfish reasons because I don't want um, all that negativity that goes into actually creating the, the meat in, in his body. And he, and, um, and it was like, yes, that's a, that's the, the logical, uh, like selfish reason behind, behind these things. So it's like when you're, for example, when you're talking about the, uh, I, I can't remember the term either off the top of my head, but, um, when you pray and you think about other people and you, you, you can kind of like work through, especially like when you're talking about people that you just, you don't like, you can work through issues with them mentally and it, it actually helps you bypass, um, um, long held emotional negative emotional feelings um with them and it that that naturally helps you because it's stuck in your subconscious as well you know and mm -hmm. um and, and yeah so, so again it just goes back to the being selfish thing i'm praying for you because i know it's going to help me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool so one of the things that um i've been thinking about is that uh Having authentic conversations is, is yet a, another and very powerful way to evolve yourself, much like meditation or the practices that, that you mentioned, right? And I think, I know that uh, me and Justin started these podcasts because we wanted to tap into that energy, like having authentic, deep conversations that move you and, then, and make you happy. You can always tell, like, if you're happy at the end of it, then... You have evolved yourself, and and if you've been challenged, you've evolved yourself, right? But the exchange of ideas, important ideas, um, is probably I'm starting to think is probably like the, maybe the best way to evolve yourself, right? Um, and and th this podcast definitely falls into that category. So I, I would again like to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and talking with us. Um, we're, I think, an hour and a half into it, uh, and that you're at work. We don't want to take too much of your time. Um, we'll still, you know, we'll still talk, talk, start talking, but if this is a good time for you to kind of exit and go back and, you know, do the manufacturing of all those Lush products, then um, <laughs> this is a good way to segue. segue. I'll leave it yeah, up to you. Yeah, I appreciate you. it. Well, I'd like to say thank you, you guys. Like, I, uh, I really enjoyed the chat. I agree with you. I feel like, um, you know, hopefully – We've shared some mutual benefit. I know that I've gained a lot from speaking to you guys today and uh, your generosity of time with me has been a, has been a big gift. And I hope we've, you know, I hope for anyone that has listened or will listen to this, that, that they get some value as well. I mean, I, I don't enjoy superficial small talk type situations. Right. Right. And I, it's like, I'm, I, I have time is a time is whatever time is, is valuable. Yes. But, but I really enjoyed today and I, I, it was the best thing that I could have done for this last hour and a half. So thank you very much. And That's awesome. I really, really appreciate reconnecting with you guys. It's been a while. You guys yeah. are amazing. Keep, keep doing the work that you're doing. Um, it's fantastic. 
thank you very thank you again thanks Graham have a good one yeah, before before we go, Graham, I'd like to just say one more thing. <laughs> I'd like to say that what I personally got out of this discussion with you is the fact that um, how you were able to be successful in an environment that helps people be, be authentic and be themselves, right? And that's important to me because a lot of places I've been in aren't like that. So the fact that there are places like that uh, out there um, makes me very happy. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that's great. I think you tapped into something. I'm, I might not have used those words before, but if just to sum it up, if, if people are interested, I would say that's probably one of the biggest reasons Lush has been successful is because exactly. it is an environment of authenticity, of people being their authentic selves. And I think that translates to the customer too, right? So Definitely. Um, that's a good one. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Thanks a lot, guys. Good to touch. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. See you. Bye-bye.